Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. At the end of June this year, Indonesia held elections for mayors and governors in 154 districts and 17 provinces, the third and final such round of local elections in this five-year electoral cycle. This year's round of elections, which in Indonesia are referred to as Pilkada, was particularly significant though for several reasons. It included gubernatorial elections in five big provinces that between them account for 56% of Indonesia's population, namely West Java, Central Java, East Java, North Sumatra and South Sulawesi. It was also our first chance to observe how the divisive dynamics of the 2017 Jakarta gubernatorial election might affect other future polls. And with the national legislative and presidential elections now less than a year away in April 2019, these local contests have been closely watched for any clues as to how next year's political competition might play out. To discuss this round of local elections, their results and their broader implications, I'm joined today by a panel of esteemed political observers. From the ICES Yusuf Ishak Institute, we have Dr. Charlotte Setiadi, who of course is also a Talkie Indonesia co-host, and Dr. Eve Warburton. And joining us too is Dr. Philips Vermonte, Executive Director of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies think tank in Jakarta. Thanks everyone for joining us to share your insights today. It's great to welcome you all back as guests to Talk Indonesia. Pleasure, Dave. Thanks, Dave. We might start off by asking you, Phillips, as I mentioned, this round of mayoral and gubernatorial elections included five big provinces comprising more than half of Indonesia's population. Now, you've highlighted in your analysis in the Indonesian media that candidates backed by the Indonesian Democratic Struggle Party, Megawati's party, PDIP, won in three of these provinces and lost in two. Now, how directly do those election results reflect the state of national politics at the moment? Now, if we compare the results of these local elections on June 27th, compare it with the local elections prior to the 2014 elections, at that time, PDIP was on the positive trend. They were the opposition parties for 10 years at that time. But in these five provinces election, they did very well in 2013, 2012, 2013. They won in Jakarta, uh, which was President Jokowi at that time as the governor of Jakarta, and then the Central Java elections. They came second in West Java and North Sumatra, Although they were underdog, they got the second position with a very thin margin from the winner at the time. So what I'm saying is, at that time, the trend was positive for PDIP towards the 2014 elections. But this year election, seems the trend is not too optimistic for PDIP because they lost in key provinces like North Sumatra and West Java. And last year, they also lost the election in Jakarta. So I think PDIP has a lot to fix. And then as an incumbent party, I think it is very important for PDIP to really evaluate their performance in these five provinces. On the other side of the coin is that PDIP actually won more elections at the districts and city levels. This is from the governance perspective. PDIP mm, has been actually very successful in selecting their candidates and making them win. But for Pak Jokowi, the results of most of this election were actually very positive because in Central Java, although PDIP candidate lost, but the actual winner is someone that is pretty much close to Pak Jokowi. 
as well as uh, in uh, East Java, the winner, uh, Ibu Kofifa, is someone that is also very close to President Jokowi. She served in his cabinet, and then he's from Nadatul Ulama, the, the largest Muslim mass organization in Indonesia, whose ideology is uh, pretty much close to Pak Jokowi and PDIP. Now, you mentioned the trends are not as positive this time around as they were for PDIP in the elections, uh, local elections heading into that 2014 poll when Jokowi was first elected. How would a party like PDIP view these elections? Would they draw a very direct line between their performance in these local polls and their prospects for next year? Or do they see them as essentially different electoral contests? Well, I, I think the most concerning province, in my opinion, for PDIP is Central Java, because this is the stronghold of PDIP, and yet the incumbent Ganjar Pranowo of PDIP only won uh, 52%. And the candidates nominated by Gurindra and Pekayas, the two opposition parties, got 42% something. So I think it's alarming for PDIP. In West Java, I think the effect is much more on Pekayas and Gurindra, because if you think about it, West Java has been governed by PKS governor for 10 years. Now they lost. And basically, they are losing the province. That means voters actually switch their preference towards the other parties. Now, the, the discussion so much about the candidates from Gurindra and PKS, I think they exploited the fact that be prior to the elections, many surveys had shown that they actually would only get 10% or less than 10% of the votes, but eventually they won 20%. Now, uh, from that perspective, it seems that they, they have been very successful in, in, in gaining support, but the larger picture is showing that they actually lost the province. And in West Java, this is the province that has been always very hard for PDIP and, and for Pak Jokowi himself as well. He lost significantly to Pak Prabowo uh, back in 2014. And now with the result, somehow for Pak Jokowi, it's, it's not as bad as the performance of PDIP prior to the 2014 election. But Central Java, I think, is, is, uh, is concerning. So uh, mixed fortunes then for the national party coalitions in these local polls. I wonder if I could turn to you though, Eve, and put the question to you of how easy is it to read the fortunes of those national party coalitions across all 171 elections? Do we see a fairly consistent pattern of coalition making at, at local level or, or are things quite confusing? Right, yeah, no, it's actually really difficult to come to any conclusion based on the coalitions in terms of, you know, who won and who didn't and was the national opposition coalition the real victor here or, or has it, have things been better for the national uh, coalition in government? And that's basically because there's no pattern, there's no real relationship between the party coalitions at the national level and the coalitions that have formed the district and, and provincial level. And that's always been the case, actually, in Indonesian politics. There's a lot of research that's been done on this and some very systematic, which just finds no pattern in, in that sense. And, and even this year, and this was a different year, actually, where we did have the opposition coalition claiming that they would do the best that they could to try and maintain a solid opposition bloc, uh, that they would, that Pan, Garindra, and PKS, to a lesser extent Pan, but certainly PKS and Garindra, would try, especially in the strategic provinces, to, to stick together and compete as, they, as, as much as they could against Jokowi allies. Now, 
In the end, what we found is that overall, you know, PDIP actually formed coalitions with PKS and Gurindra as often as Gurindra and PKS formed coalitions. So, so it is really messy and it's very complicated. And as hard as, as, as PKS and Gurindra may have tried, there's a few things that make it really difficult. And one reason is, is that, you know, coalition building at the local level has always been really driven by sort of material interests and it's a really transactional process so it's all about nominating candidates that can pay a certain amount of money for their nomination it's a really messy process negotiating that and also there's a really limited pool actually of candidates that are competitive in in some of these elections in these regional and and, uh, in these sort of districts and provinces and so you know Pekka S and Garindra even when they did stick together they often ended up nominating pretty uncompetitive candidates or, or they failed entirely and had to get on on board with PDIP. So that's why I think it's, you know, there's been quite a lot of commentary in the media trying to assess which coalition did better and and who's got the upper hand now. And actually, it's really difficult to come to any sort of neat conclusion about that. Sure, sure. You know, nevertheless, it's perfectly understandable with the the elections, the national elections so close next year, that this is one of the the best clues that we have sort of in in a very limited field of clues. But I guess what you're saying is certainly consistent if we turn back to 2014, that if we look at those big five provinces that I mentioned, four of the five governors in those provinces endorsed Prabowo Subianto at the time, but Prabowo only ended up winning in the in the one province out of those five. So, so we didn't see a correspondence between the results in those elections and then what happened in the presidential poll. Now, Phillips, returning to you, is... There are reason to expect a more direct correspondence between those gubernatorial election results this time and how those provinces will vote in the presidential election, do you think? I agree with Eves. It's too early to tell. For Pajoko, it seems to be very positive, but it's because the other side is not consolidated yet and no definitive candidate. So it is highly likely that the voters have yet to connect between this election in their respective province or district or, or, or cities with the presidential elections. But, for example, we did a survey in these five provinces. Among the questions that we asked to the voters, do you know which party nominate your preferred candidates? And then the, for the candidates of the PDIP, they seem to know very well. But for the other parties, they very weakly connect the candidates with the parties. So I think it's because the brand of Pajokowi and PDIP has been very strong. Uh, seems to be that Pajokowi is a definitive candidate. He's the incumbent. He's looking for re-election and so on. But the other candidates from Grindra or Pekais have yet to be decided. Although, of course, Prabowo seems to be very strong. But still, right now, people can think about different candidates. So that's number one. Number two, it is hard to tell as well because if we look at the results of the West Java election, many of PDIP voters actually voted for Ridwan Kamil, not voted for the candidates put forward by PDIP. So in a way, probably because West Java is a province that has been very difficult to predict as well. Uh, It's swinging uh, from time to time. So this, I think, uh, relates to the fact that we have a kind of a very complicated electoral system right now. Voters could not really identify themselves with certain candidates of certain political parties because there are layers of governance and 
we have multi-party system. So this complexities in our electoral system, I think, affects the way we look at the election because it's very, I'm not saying uh, uncertain, but it's fluid. The coalition formation is fluid. And then unless you are an incumbent, then you will have a lower chance to get recognized by the voters. And I mean, adding to the complexity, of course, for the first time next year, Indonesia will hold the legislative and presidential elections on the same day rather than having them staggered. And I don't think any of us quite know how that will turn out at this point. But maybe we could turn away from 2019 for just a second and return to earlier elections. And of course, the one local election that has grabbed broader attention over the course of this five-year local electoral cycle was the Jakarta gubernatorial election in 2017, in which the popular incumbent Basuki Cahaya Panama, known widely as Ahok, lost in the wake of an Islamist mobilisation against him and his prosecution and eventual conviction on blasphemy charges. Now, Charlotte, uh, could I ask you, how was the legacy of that polarising Jakarta election expected to affect this round of local elections? Yeah, it was certainly a worry among analysts and also uh, among politicians themselves, particularly because in the wake of the Jakarta elections, the Islamist coalition, the opposition coalition that supported Anis Baswedan and Sandiaga Uno at that time, PKS, Gerindra and PAN, had said that they will try to replicate their success in Jakarta, in other parts of the archipelago. And it was a wake-up call for um, everyone from both sides of the political spectrum about this new tactic of mobilizing identity politics, and in particular ethno-religious politics, in order to win elections. And this is dangerous, particularly for areas where there's a high probability of sectarian or communal conflict or um, multi-ethnic, multi-religious areas with a history of conflict or at least dissonance in the past. So if we're thinking about provinces such as West Kalimantan that has been identified by organizations such as IPAC, for instance, as a potential conflict area, other areas such as North Sumatra, which is multi-religious and multi-ethnic, the worry was that the same tactics that ended up working in Jakarta against Ahok would be replicated and be successful in these other provinces as well. And as far as I understand, you conducted fieldwork for these elections in West Kalimantan, one of the provinces you've highlighted there. I mean, how did these sorts of dynamics and identity politics manifest in the elections there? Were the, were the concerns of various observers borne out in the end? In many ways, yes, it did. So during my time at West Kalimantan and following the, the, the different campaigns of the three candidates represented by Karolin Margrenatasa, who's, uh, who's supported by PDIP, as well as uh, Partai Demokrat. She is the daughter of the former governor, Cornelis, and she is Daya Catholic. And her main opposition was Sutarmiji, the incumbent mayor of Pontianak. And um, he was supported by Golkar, Petiga, as well as PKB. And and a number of other smaller parties, and he represents Malay Muslims. Now, Malay Muslims and Daya Catholics, who in the past have been in coalition with ethnic Chinese voters, predominantly Christian and Buddhist as well, have had a history of voting within these blocks. And if we look at West Kalimantan's history, that province have also had histories of communal violence, particularly in recent memory between the Dayak and Malays against the Madurese transmigrants in 1999. Actually, in 2016-2017, during the whole Jakarta commotion surrounding Ahok's blasphemy allegation in West Kalimantan, Various Islamist groups, including the FPI, 
had staged various demonstrations to try to rouse up Islamist sentiments among the Malay population there. And they had started voicing demands for West Kalimantan to have a Malay Muslim governor to sort of break away from the Dayak Chinese dominance even back in 2017. So this year's election in West Kalimantan, the gubernatorial election, was quite an important one for the province because it represented these two competing ethno-religious factions. To make matters more interesting in, in the province is the presence of a third candidate, Milton Crosby and Boyman Harun, sponsored by Gerindra and Pan. So Milton Crosby is Dayak Catholic and Boyman Harun is Muslim Malay. And many observers and, and, and many on the ground had speculated that Milton and Boyman were only there as part of a wider coalition organized from Jakarta to basically split the Dayak vote in order to ensure victory of Sutarmiji and victory for the Malay Muslims. So it was a very charged campaigning in, in West Kalimantan, certainly in the rallies that I attended. Identity politics dominated. There wasn't much talk about policy platforms or anything like that. And from both sides of the campaign, Caroline Natasa's campaign emphasized on um, Dayak native identity, while Sudarmiji's campaign focused on Islamist identity narratives. And in the end, uh, Sudarmiji won with 51% of the vote. And it goes to show that identity politics can go a long way in, in winning uh, an election, particularly in, an um, in a province that already has potential for these kind of divisive tactics to take root. I think that's the interesting question for me that arises from your analysis there is you've mentioned there's been a history of voting in these kind of religio-ethnic blocks in West Kalimantan. Did you get a sense of whether the sort of campaign you witnessed this time, that charged atmosphere with identity politics very much to the forefront, was something new for that? I guess something new in the sense of sharper still because of the Jakarta poll, or, or is this simply a continuation of the pattern of politics in that province? I think it's a combination of both. There's certainly a continu continuation of past patterns in terms of ethno-religious animosity between the Dayak Christians and the Muslim Malays. And there's a lot of personal animosity there as well that, that goes goes back a long time. But if you speak to people on the ground in West Kalimantan, and if you speak to the candidates themselves, they would tell you that the, the situation and the atmosphere certainly got heated up because of what happened in Jakarta last year. And certainly at the, at the level of campaigning, it brought to the forefront this intensity of Islamist identity politics in the province. And I mean, another aspect of this West Kalimantan poll was, as you mentioned, you had the candidacy of the former governor's daughter in this election, with the quick count suggesting that she lost in a landslide. And elsewhere, we've seen losses for other dynastic gubernatorial candidates in South Sumatra, where the son of the governor ran, in South Sulawesi, where the governor's younger brother also ran. Do you see these results as essentially unrelated results of individual elections, or do they reflect the struggles of political dynasties across Indonesia to establish themselves at local level? In West Kalimantan, where I was, one of the uh, sentiments that went against Caroline, despite the fact that she was a two-time MP uh, representing West Kalimantan in Jakarta, despite the fact that she uh, was the regent of Landak, so she had a track record of her own, 
the fact that she's regarded as a puppet candidate placed there by her father to try to establish a political dynasty was something that a lot of people wasn't comfortable with. Not just the Malay Muslims, but also among Dayak voters as well, who saw that you know, this is a blatant attempt, attempt to try to centralize power within within the, the one family. In South Sulawesi, ultimately, the voters voted for uh, Nurin Abdullah, somebody who analysts uh, saw as being more capable. He's a proven technocrat with a clean record. Uh, another example that I'd like to mention here is also the example from the Makassar mayoral election where because of you know accusations of administrative irregularity the incumbent popular incumbent mayor Denny Pomanto was not able to run in that race so um, the the remaining candidate is the nephew of Joseph Kala and this was also regarded as you know meddling in in the attempt to try to establish you know the, a political dynasty there as well that also failed 53% of the voters would rather vote for an empty ballot box rather than voting for a candidate that they was the result of nepotistic means. To clarify, because Vice President Yusuf Kala's nephew was the only candidate in the Makassar election, he appears on the ballot form alongside an empty box. If the empty box wins, a fresh election is held. So I think we see here that voters are certainly aware, are certainly smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. And at the end of the day, they will vote for candidates that they think have the capability to run the province or the district and not just based on political family affiliations. Can I draw you in on that point, Philip? You've highlighted in your commentary within Indonesia this case of Nurdin Abdullah that uh, Charlotte has mentioned in South Sulawesi, basically running on a record of good service delivery uh, as mayor previously. Is that kind of technocratic good governance image emerging as a template to defeat dynastic politics, defeat sort of entrenched party interests, or, or are these cases like Nurdin Abdullah still exceptions? For now, it seems to me, yes, especially in South Sulawesi, because Nurdin defeated the long-established family in South Sulawesi. And you might always also be familiar with the case of Makassar City. So it's a kind of new politics that emerge out of these local elections. But somehow the pair of Nurdin Abdullah is also part of the long-established family, the Muzakar family in, in South Sulawesi. So we don't know how it will play out, but the figure of the governor-elect is someone who is very technocratic. And if we look at the West Java, Ridwan Kamil also presents himself as a technocrat. He's an architect. The way he governs in uh, in Bandung as a mayor also shows that he's uh, emphasizing more on the city development and so on and so forth. In a way, in uh, East Java as well, Kofifa, she's not the uh, you know part of this established family within Nadatul Ulama. She's an activist. She worked herself out from the lower ladder of politics into the top where she is now. She defeated Gus Ipo, <clears throat> the opponent, who is coming from a very well-established Nadatul Ulama family. And Kofiva's record, uh, she is in a way also a someone with uh, technocratic experience. She served as uh, ministers in some positions before. Now, I think this is the resemblance of what happened in the previous election. Because the way I see it is that local elections in Indonesia is a direct consequence of the regional autonomy program that we started back in 1999. Now, we start to see the fruits. Before this, we had Pak Jokowi as mayor, 
And also now we still have Ibu Risma as a good mayor in Surabaya, Governor Ahok in, in, in Jakarta, and then maybe uh, mayor of Bogor and uh, some other districts in uh, some areas in Java, in Sulawesi, and in, in, in Kalimantan, who actually <clears throat> are very good examples of uh, new leadership in Indonesia, and some of whom also defeated the kind of local kinship politics in Indonesia. Although I would not exaggerate, but we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, I do hope that it will be contagious now because, in my opinion, people start to have a benchmark when they elect a leader in the region. People certainly nearby Surabaya, they will compare the, the area where, where they live, the city where they live, with the performance of Ibu Risma in Surabaya, for example. And also people will look up to Ridwan Kamil or to Nurdin Abdullah. They start to compare their leaders with the leaders of the different region. So what I'm saying is we are going to have a new uh, pool of leaders coming from the region, uh, which is a direct consequence of the regional economy program that we started back in 1999. That's fascinating and certainly a dynamic to watch as those leaders uh, work their way up the up the political chain international politics. Now, Eve, you yourself were in West Java, whereas Phillips mentioned we've seen the victory of this reform image mayor of Bandung, Ridwan Kamil. Now, was it your impression that it was his record as mayor of Bandung that won him the gubernatorial poll there? Uh, so Ridwan Kamil certainly emphasised his track record during the campaign, and he does have a pretty good track record as mayor of Bandung. Uh, you know, he's received several awards, international and local, for some of his achievements in terms of urban planning, creating new green space in Bandung, some of the innovations that he has come up with in terms of, you know, making government services online, new applications to make government services more easily accessible, things like this. But I think it's also important to emphasise that Rivan Kamal is really good at personal branding, right? So he's got a really sophisticated sort of creative and communications team, he looks good in front of a camera. He's very handsome and that helps. And so he's got a, a pretty slick team, a really large social media presence, a really impressive social media presence. He's got 8 million followers on Instagram, which I'm pretty sure I'm right here when I say that's just the second most followers that an Indonesian politician has after uh, President Jokowi. So all this stuff works in his favour. But I think, you know, just to sort of add a little bit of nuance to this, I don't think Ridwan Kamal could have won in a place like West Java if he didn't do something else. And that was that he consciously Islamized his image as well. So, you know, he's a, he's a man with a, he's US educated, he speaks English, he's naturally got this kind of cosmopolitan air to him. He's a bit elitist as well. In, in a sense, his international kind of orientation, his style is, is very self conscious. But then he had to self consciously Islamize it for the purposes of this election. So he went on the Hajj, he really emphasized his son three roots. So he's sort of more pious Islamic roots, even in the fact that his parents were Pasantra and educated and were quite prominent leaders within the Islamic community. So, and, and then as a running mate, we had to have Uu, which is a man who is a former district head of Tasik Malaya, not a very good one, apparently, according to the people on the ground. But he had to do that because Uu had good connections to the conservative Islamic networks, even some who were connected to the 212 movement, which brought Ahok down in Jakarta. And so my point is that actually even, you know, reformists with a good track record who have a more moderate sort of religious identity in some places really have to, I guess, attend to 
uh, the demands of the more Islamic, uh, the more conservative constituents in their area and also insulate themselves from the kinds of Islamist-inspired smear campaigns and sectarian attacks that they fear, uh, really, that they fear much more, I think, since what took place in Jakarta. Um, and so I think that that was quite an important part of, of, of Ridwan's campaign as well. Returning to the overall picture from these elections, if in 2017 the Jakarta election provoked fears of increasingly sharp identity politics in Indonesia, did these elections highlight any new patterns in electoral competition in Indonesia for any of you, perhaps starting with Charlotte? I think it's a combination between old tactics and I think new tactics that the party machinery have learned from the experience of Jakarta in 2017. From our observations at least, and this has also been commented on by other analysts and journalists as well, is that you do still see some of the older tactics being used uh, on the ground. For instance, money politics. You still see candidates blatantly giving out cash during the last days of election, giving out basic food items, particularly because two weeks before the polling date, it was uh, Lebaran or the Eid holiday. So it was an opportunity taken advantage of by many candidates to give cash handouts and, and to, to win votes. You still see, like Phillips mentioned before as well, that political connections in terms of family connections or local networks still very important, particularly in these regional elections. But it's evident as well that parties and the coalitions have learned from 2017 as well. Analysts have commented on the fact that actually identity politics in this round of elections haven't been that bad. Yes, it hasn't been that bad compared to Jakarta in 2017, where you saw such dramatic results, resulting not only in Ahok losing office, but also um, ending up in jail for blasphemy. But that was such a singular case. And um, anything apart from that appeared really quite mild. But actually, if you look at the campaign narratives, particularly in some of the areas that, that we were at in West Java, uh, we had a colleague, Desi Simanjuntak, who was also in North Sumatra, myself in West, well, West Kalimantan, you see an amplified use of identity politics. Even for uh, popular candidates such as Ridwan Kamil, as Eve mentioned before, going just by his uh, reputation or existing popularity without trying to also appeal to the Islamic voter base is not important. And this is something that needs to be amplified, the, the um, Islamist credentials. So you do see an amplification of identity politics. And I think this is like quite a new pattern that we will need to keep an eye out for, particularly in the lead up to the 2019 elections. And Eve, would you add anything to that? Yes, uh, yeah, I, I would agree um, basically with what with what Charlotte said, and I think it's important to listen to people who've been involved in these campaigns for many years. And, and the feeling in West Java was that you know, uh, the, the mobilization of identities in sort of exclusive and, and sort of sectarian ways has been a feature of Indonesia's regional politics for many years, but in a more subtle way. And, and people would, would call, you know, the old way of doing things libichantic or, or just a little more beautiful or less offensive. And these days, it's they think that what they feel is that since 2014, even the presidential election, and, and especially 2017, we've seen the sectarian themed or the Islamist themed hoaxes and black campaigns being performed in a much more explicit and aggressive and crude way. And of course, you know, Indonesians are much more online these days and, and the, the spreading of these sorts of hoaxes and rumours, you know, Ridwan Kamal was constantly being exposed to rumours that he was gay or that he supported the LGBT community. Um, he was called Shia, Dedi Mulyadi was called a kafir. You know, these things were kind of spread through social media pretty constantly. I guess the big question is, 
Um, you know, so we had this kind of shift in the tenor of identity politics. Um, but the bigger question really is how effective is it? You know, it's, it's not necessarily decisive in, in all contexts. It was obviously very decisive in Jakarta and in places like West Kalimantan. They can use these new tools and layer them onto old divisions. Um, and in West Java, I think what it did was it made everyone really tense and it made everyone have to defend themselves. It made everyone have to kind of insulate themselves and appear more Islamic and find Islamic Islamist kind of connected wakils or deputies. So it, it kind of changes the way I think politics is calculated, but it's not necessarily always the decisive factor. And that's when you really have to look at a case-by-case basis. Phillips, was there a new pattern in electoral competition that stood out for you from these polls? Yeah, I think there's one thing that I observed prior to the election. That is, it seems to me that the coalition party, the opposition coalition party, tried to set up a consistent coalition in nominating the candidates across Indonesia. For example, we, we set up a kind of a, a database here at CSIS and uh, looking at the patterns of coalitions. It seems to us that Gerindra, PKS, and PAN are more consistent in forming coalition among them than PDIP and the government coalition party. That's number one. So they attempted to form this coalition disciplinedly across Indonesia. Whether it works or not, we'll see after the real count is done by the by the, by the KPU. But uh, this is something new, in my opinion. And then secondly, I think this local election is news to mid-sized parties in Indonesia. So uh, based on the same database that we uh, set up, I think it's available as well in many media in Indonesia, the mid-sized parties are more willing to form coalition with parties across their ideology. So let's say PAN or NASDEM, although they are NASDEM is uh, supporters of uh, Jokowi and then the part of the coalition government with PDIP, but they form more coalition with party outside this government coalition. So what I'm saying is that this middle size party are more willing to widen their constituent base compared to the party like PDIP that is not very flexible in doing so. Now, in the context of presidential election, I think then now this uh, mid-sized party have more bargaining positions because they could claim that they actually contribute in helping the winning candidates in areas that their party machineries are working and so on. Charlotte, Eve, Phillips, thanks so much for joining us today to share your insights. It's been great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thank you. That was Dr. Charlotte Satyadi and Dr. Eve Warburton from the IC's Yusuf Ishak Institute, and Dr. Phillips Vermonte, Executive Director of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in Jakarta. Join us again on 19 July for the next episode of Talking Indonesia, hosted by Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or subscribe via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. We'd really appreciate it as well if you could leave us a rating wherever you access Talking Indonesia. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.